I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is a Cosmos Briefing bonus episode. Today, we talk with journalist Earl Swift. Earl's latest book, Across the Airless Wilds, The Lunar Rover and the Triumph of the Final Moon Landings, is the follow-up to his acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Chesapeake Requiem. In it, he looks at the final three Apollo moon landings, arguing that these overlooked missions, distinguished by the use of the revolutionary lunar roving vehicle, were the pinnacle of human exploration. Today's interview is hosted by Royal Institution of Australia Editor-in-Chief Ian Cannellan. I'm talking today to Earl Swift. He's in Virginia in the United States and he's the author of Across the Airless Wilds, which is a book about the last three Apollo moon landings and in particular their use of a lunar rover or LRV, lunar rover vehicle. Um, Earl's been writing uh, and he's been a journalist as well throughout his life. Um, He wrote a beautiful book about well, ultimately about climate change, called Chesapeake Requiem. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him. Hello, Earl. Ian, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Tell me, what is the attraction of the last three moon landings? We, we are so fixated on Apollo 11, we tend not to think of what came afterwards. What was the attraction for you? Well, I think you just articulated it there pretty well. The, the shadow cast by Apollo 11 has dimmed our recollections of the other five landings. And the last three were by far the most audacious, the the most uh, ambitious in in scope, in science, in the range of exploration. And no one seems to really remember that. And, uh, you know, I came into it uh, interested in in the rover as an engineering project and uh, left the story really seeing the rover as the key to a completely completely different style of of lunar program. It transformed Apollo. Right. Look, um, when I first got notice of the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be a book about engineering. Um, And I think one of the delights of it is that it, 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 of course, it focuses on engineering, but it segues beautifully into the the idea of human exploration and particularly the thing that we don't think about that the extent at this stage of manned human exploration is these last three apollo missions yeah that the the apogee of our our explorations as a species uh are with apollos 15 16 and 17. You relate um, a, a lovely little story. I, th- I think it's from the last mission, Apollo 17, about the the, the longest distance that astronauts travel in a rover. So that would have been uh, Jack Schmidt and Gene Cernan. Tell, Gene tell, me, tell me yep. about that, Earl. Where, how far were they from there, from safety? Uh, uh, well, four point. <laughs> yeah, from safety. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everything's relative. Yeah, they, right. they it's not only the distance, the sheer distance, which was four point seven two miles from the lunar module, but it, the idea that they they got into what is essentially a nineteen sixty nine General Motors product, a Holden basically, right. and they drove it uh, across several miles of undulating plain, up a a pretty steeply sloping avalanche fan over a, uh, a ridge-like fault, uh, raised fault, 
that crossed the valley that they were landed on, and then down the other side. And so they were not only 4.72 miles, but they were a long climb back over that ridge away from the lunar module, far uh, you know, out of sight of it, of their one way home. And uh, if you've driven a 1969 Chummer Motors product, you, you recognize that those cars had as much in common with horseless carriages of the 1890s as they did with the cars that we drive today, you know, these super uh, reliable appliances that vehicles have become. And uh, the notion that they would get into that and drive it as far as they did in the circumstances they did, the most hazardous circumstances any drive has ever been conducted in, uh, just boggles my mind. Were they looking for a particular something? Is that why they went so far from the, the lunar module? Well, in that particular case, they stopped at the foot of a, a massive, uh, several thousand feet high. And uh, a great many boulders had rolled down the face of that massive and had left uh, craters along the way they, that could be seen from uh, reconnaissance orbiters circling the moon. So they knew that the boulders that lay at the, at the foot of the mountain came from way up on top. And this gave the program a chance to sample uh, lunar geology from on top of the you know from up a on a mountaintop without having to climb that mountain so it was uh, it was pretty handy right we might um, we might circle back to the astronauts a little later but just can can you tell us a little bit about the the, the critical payload for all of the apollo missions was was that rock and soil material brought back from the moon how much of that did those last three missions account for? Almost three quarters of the total were collected on the on the last three. So half the missions brought back three quarters of the uh, of the material, and right. and from much more interesting places than the first three. Right. Because the first three missions were on foot, they were limited as to where they they could go, and uh, and the the last missions really were able to sample from a wide variety of terrain, and that was why. You know the, those missions were designed the way they they were, and and why those those crews landed exactly where they did. So, Earl, tell us about the uh, the, the the origins and development of a plan to take a nineteen sixty nine Holden to the moon. Um, <laughs> who, whose idea was it, and, um, and and how did it come about? Well, whose idea? You know, that's a that's a tough question because. Uh, the concept has been alive since before the Wright brothers flew. If you go back and there, there's a, a Polish science fiction novel from 1901 that features a, a lunar rover. And it was a, a mainstay of science fiction all through the 30s and 40s. It wasn't until 1952 that it became the subject of, of real nonfiction inquiry. Uh, and that was in Collier's Magazine. They published a series of stories prognosticating as to what a future moon mission might look like. Uh, and, you know, once NASA was created, uh, uh, the author of those stories in Colliers, a fellow named Werner von Braun, whom you may have heard something about, mm. uh, he, uh, he took a personal interest at the Marshall Space Flight Center, where he was director in seeing that the ideas laid out early uh, really took on more concrete form. And, uh, and so there were a, ver a variety of iterations of a rover throughout the 60s, none of which were 
all that practical when NASA's budget started to be trimmed because they were all massive vehicles with pressurized cabins that would have required their own Saturn V to reach the moon. Wow. So NASA walked away, eventually walked away from the program. In 19, late 1967, after a, a particularly tough round of budget cuts, yeah, I think Marshall threw up, you know, uh, Werner von Braun and his associates at Marshall threw up their hands and, uh, and walked away, figuring that it wasn't going to happen during Apollo. And a, uh, a group of engineers at General Motors in Santa Barbara, this is not the automotive division, this is a, a defense research lab, really, in Santa Barbara, California, uh, had invested so many years and so much effort in these earlier concepts that they weren't willing to just you know, kiss off the, the idea. And so one of them, a guy named Ferenc Pavlik, a refugee of the 1956 Hungarian uprising, uh, spent four months figuring out how can we take you know, what we know about rover concepts that we've developed over these last eight to 10 years and just miniaturize them so that we can get a, uh, a go-kart, for lack of a better word, that can origami with fold up like a business letter, uh, small enough to be able to shoehorn into a, the one available cargo bay on the lunar module, which was a, a space about the size and shape of a pup tent standing on its end. So it's wedge-shaped, uh, five by five by four feet, tiny. And he did it. And uh, he and his, his boss at GM took uh, a model, a one-sixth scale model with a G.I. Joe action figure at the controls to Werner von Braun. It, it was set up with a little radio control device so they could, they could run it into von Braun's office without being seen. And he was on the phone at the time as this, this little toy rover came skittering across his rug and uh, put down the phone and said, what is this? And, you know, the rest is history. Uh, um, if, you're, if, if you're keen on the Apollo program and a, a lot of people our age are, um, you've heard of Von Braun, but these guys that developed the rover, the, the engineering crew that did that, they're, they're, they're not household names, are they? No, they weren't with NASA, for one thing. That's which is, you know, a departure from what most people envision, I think, about the Apollo program. They see it as the product of NASA. And in reality, NASA was a, uh, a ringleader of a, of a huge private contractor effort. And that was true in the rover as well. The uh, uh, Boeing and General Motors were the, the two big players in the rover that we got. But there were other companies that were competing with them and it went down to the wire. Okay, let's, uh, let, let, let's come back to the, you know, the guys that actually hit the accelerator and did the driving. There are, I'm right, I think, in saying that of the six astronauts that were on the moon in these missions, three survived to today? True. Did you speak to all of them, Earl? Two of the three. Two of the three. Right. Uh, tell, me, tell me about those two men. What are they like these days? Well, I mean, uh, Dave Scott lives in Florida. He's uh, very active in... Uh, in Apollo sort of stuff to this day. As for that matter is Charlie Duke, who lives in rural Texas. Um, less so maybe a little is Jack Schmidt, Harrison Jack Schmidt, who lives in, uh, in New Mexico. Um, but they, uh, you know, they remain, uh, I think it would be safe to characterize them as pretty no-nonsense individuals right. who, uh, 
who have who have very little uh, patience for for uh, foolishness, and uh, you know, I mean, they're all fighter pilots. Uh, Jack Schmidt, of course, was a geologist who then learned to be a fighter pilot so that he could qualify to be an astronaut. But uh, but they're all very uh, task task oriented. I'd say very smart men, engineers. Uh, you know, Dave Scott and Charlie Duke both took very active roles in, in the rover's development. Charlie Duke and John Young, his partner, were, you know, his commander, were originally supposed to be the first crew to use the rover. So in its very early development within GM, they were on site quite a bit. And then when uh, missions, you know, the, in September of 1970, when two of the Apollo missions were canceled and, and everything was rejiggered so that the J missions, the first to use the rover, moved up to Apollo 15. Then um, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin took over that role. They were, they were very hands-on. What's their, what's their memory of, of driving the thing on the moon? How do they describe it? Um, they all talk about uh, uh, how bouncy, how squirrely, how much uh, like a being in a small boat in rough water, it felt like at times. It had a it had a very responsive suspension with ten inches of travel. But the you know the big thing was that it, it weighed next to nothing on the moon. It was, it weighed seventy eight pounds in the one sixth gravity of, of the lunar surface. And so when you hit a bump, it 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 didn't you know it didn't rise and then fall immediately like a, a, a vehicle on Earth would. It it tended to kind of hang in the air for a while and. It, it almost in slow-mo would come down and uh it uh, uh charlie duke in particular uh described it as as like driving on snow or ice in the states where you fishtail if you if you turn too quickly uh had very responsive s- steering at, at both ends and uh and a very short wheelbase so those two things combined to you know didn't track well in a straight line necessarily <laughs> what sort of a top speed did it have earl well, it was initially designed, I guess, to, to be able to top out at about 10, 10 miles per hour. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a reasonably fit human on Earth could outrun it um, pretty easily. Uh, but what the astronauts found was that on the lunar surface with uh, the lighting as it was, with the uh, lack of definition in the surface, such as it was, uh, they dare not drive at 10 miles an hour most of the time. Uh, right. a, a good clip on the moon was, was about six. Uh, and, and you felt apparently like you were moving along at a pretty good clip at six miles per hour. <laughs> what was its power source, Earl? Its power source was two, uh, uh, two large 36-pound uh, batteries uh, that uh, were not rechargeable. Right. And... Uh, which powered uh, a tiny quarter horsepower electric motors in each wheel hub uh, that were then attached to a, a perhaps the most unique thing about the rover, a transmission that had three parts, only two of which that moved, and yet was able to step down this fast-spinning electric motor, which spun around at about 10,000 revolutions per minute, was able to step it down uh, with an 80 to 1 ratio to about 125 turns of the rover's wheels. So the the entire vehicle uh, boasted one horsepower total in all four wheels, 
you can find a weed whacker that will will outgun it. <laughs> and it, uh, but with that transmission, it generated enough torque to be able to get it and its its pretty heavy load of cargo wherever it needed to be, and that included going up some pretty impressive slopes, you know, 18 degrees or more, um, and climbing mountainsides hundreds of feet high. You you mentioned that in the moon on the moon's gravity, it topped out at about. 78 or 80 pounds so, you know we're, we're talking less than 40 kilograms here um what, what was the actual weight of the thing in in earth gravity there were variations small variations in each uh the uh lrv1 that went on apollo 15 weighed 464 pounds uh, lrv2 weighed 462 and the third lrv weighed 470 and Added to that was about 30 pounds of deployment gear that, that held the rover fast in the lunar module during flight and then unfolded it and lowered it to the surface once it got to the, got okay. to the lunar surface. You, you must have um, developed a sense of, of which of the three of them um, did the most, provided the most assistance. Do you have a favourite of the three or, or do you regard them all equally? Of the missions or the rovers? The rovers. I think they they all performed well beyond the expectations of anyone at NASA. I think it, one of the interesting things about the Apollo program is that each mission uh, established a baseline for the next. They were all development missions, testing procedures and equipment so that the next mission could take it, take it farther and further. And... Um, and right up in, you know, all of them were development missions up until 15. And you could argue that the first EVA, the first extravehicular uh, activity, the first time the astronauts left the LM, could argue that that first, first time was a development EVA because it's the first time they actually used the rover. The rover had never been tested in any sort of circumstance that, that was realistic, you know, I mean, not with people in it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that first drive was was really the last developmental mission of the of the Apollo program. After that, it was all, you know, let's go explore, let's go do science. Um, so LRV one appeals because it was the the guinea pig. Mm. Uh, LRV two appeals mostly because uh, the guys in it, I think, had the most fun of any crew. Uh, Charlie Duke and John Young were pretty funny guys. Mm. And LRV3 appeals because it went the farthest. Uh, it, uh, it took its astronauts right out to the edge of the edge of the edge of human exploration. Uh, but also because it, it broke and they fixed it. You know, they, yeah. did some, they did some automotive body repair on LRV3 and, and saved the mission, really, with a, a group of, uh, of maps and duct tape. Uh, yeah. So. Is there anything that duct tape won't fix, Earl? <laughs> <laughs> it almost met its match there. <laughs> I imagine that um, humanity's planning to go back to the moon, finally, after all these years, um, based on what you learned researching and writing the book, I, I imagine you would say that some kind of um, vehicle to assist movement is, would be just about essential. Yeah, I, I can't conceive, I can't imagine that, that uh, NASA 
would even consider a mission that didn't have some a pretty pretty heavy duty mobility element to it. Uh, you know, if anything, the the first three missions uh, demonstrated that uh, it's all well and good to get to the surface, but you have to have something to do once you're there. And and really, the rover opened opened that all up. Uh, without it, they were they were pretty hamstrung. Mm. Did they, I, I think last question, did they, those lunar rovers um, have any influence at all on the Mars rovers, on, on things that have come after? Um, were there, are the, I mean, there's, there's such a huge difference between robotics and something that someone's driving, but... It's interesting. Uh, if you were to look for a direct lineage between the four-wheeled rovers that went on those three Apollo missions and, say, Perseverance, you wouldn't find many. You'd find, of course, uh, materials engineered to be as light as possible, that sort of thing. You'd find, you'd see lightweight, high-speed electric motors. Uh, but what you, uh, if you go back a few years into the developmental phase of GM's work in Santa Barbara, uh, to those big rovers that they were working on, the you know, the giant economy-sized pressurized vehicles, you see, you see a very direct line of lineage between those early concepts and what later came out of the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Six-wheeled vehicles, all-wheel drive. They were all six-by-sixes. Uh, in the GM iterations, these vehicles had a flexible frame that would allow or enable all six wheels to remain firmly planted on the ground, no matter what sort of you know obstacles they encountered what you see in in perseverance and the other the other rovers going all the way back to sojourner is a a variation on that kind of thinking instead of making the the frame uh, flexible with the wheels attached to that frame uh, jpl separated the wheels all together from the frame and put it on a separate semi-independent uh, uh, rigid uh, suspension system that's hinged, but is not elastic in any way, but emulates those flexible frames that, that GM worked on back in the early and mid-60s. Uh, so it's a, it's a different approach to the same, same, sort, of, uh, same sort of problem, uh, similar thinking behind both. And, yeah, uh, well, we, so yeah, we, the answer we, is, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but not as, not, as, uh, not as straightforward as you would expect. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you have to go back to the the rover's uh, uh, infancy. Really, it's it's pre-infancy, the embryonic idea stage, and there you find the the wellspring for some of the stuff that came separately for the Mars rovers. Yeah. Right. Earl, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you, and um, I wish you the very best of success for the book. Um, it's it's out now. Um, are you are you busy touring? Well, it comes out on Tuesday, so that's three days from now as we right. speak. And um, it, uh, yeah, uh, come Tuesday, I sure will be. <laughs> it's going to get a little bit intense, but uh, but it's been, uh, it's you know, the great thing about writing books is that they smarten you up on <laughs> subjects that you're by no means an expert on necessarily if you're a journalist like me. Uh, but by talking to all of the experts. Um, you know, you briefly kind of uh, piggyback on on their big brains and uh, and become a de facto expert yourself. And it's been uh, it's been really interesting to to learn about about these machines and the heroes, mostly unknown uh, to the to the public who who 
conceived of them. Well, thanks so much again and all the best for the book. Ian, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. This episode is a briefing bonus that complements our longer Cosmos briefing panel discussions. You can watch and listen to all of our briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Ian Canellan, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. <laughs>